Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Sound Medicine Podcast. I'm Barbara Lewis. This is episode number seven. And today, we have a report card of sorts on the American healthcare system from the corner office. We're not making widgets here. Every widget's the same. Every patient that goes to see her or his doctor is different. And what those patients don't want is to be objectified. Oh, you're the lady with breast cancer. You're the boy with testicular cancer. You're the man with a brain tumor. No, I'm Dan. That's Dan Evans. He retired recently after 14 years leading IU Health. That's one of the top dozen academic medical centers in the country. And while his experience is in that one particular system, which provides research, training, and clinical care, much of what he talked about really applies to the entire U.S. healthcare behemoth. We wanted to pick his brain about what it was like to have a front row seat on what's arguably the biggest transformation of healthcare delivery really ever. I doubt if in recent history there's been an act that's engendered multiple Supreme Court decisions, multiple, multiple courts of appeals decisions, decisions by 50 states and one commonwealth, Puerto Rico, as to how to implement, and then years and years and years of implementation and measurement. So now we're six, seven years out from the Affordable Care Act becoming the law of the land. So now we've got, by the government's count, and it's probably accurate, about 20 million people who are insured because of the Affordable Care Act that wouldn't have been insured otherwise. Now, that also includes Medicaid expansion. So not all of them are the health care exchanges and those things. Some of them are Medicaid expansion. But all the elements of the Affordable Care Act have led to about 20 million people being insured who wouldn't otherwise be insured. That's a very good thing. Politicians can debate it, but as a health care administrator, being able to provide more care to people who defer care or don't get it and therefore live in a poor health state is definitely uh, an improvement. It's spottiest application. Only 32 states have expanded Medicaid, 32 states plus the District of Columbia. So we still have a significant number of states that have not expanded. But I'd say all in all, 20 million people is a good thing. 10%, some politicians say 11, some say 9, but the numbers are around 10% of Americans are still not insured. So that means we have millions who are not insured. There's work to be done. So I was just wondering, I'm thinking back in your office 
when the Affordable Care Act was first passed and you're trying to plan for it. And then you're trying to implement it. As you said, everything is changing and, and, and there's, there's court cases, there's this, there's that. Can you kind of take me through your thinking then and then what really happened? Or was it very close to what you had planned? Well, the only similar situation I can think of is in LBJ's first well, the end of President Kennedy's term and Medicare and Medicaid become the law, the same thing happened when suddenly tens of millions of people had health insurance that didn't have it before. And it took some time for our country to adjust to that. The same thing is happening now. Remember when the exchanges opened up, it was chaos. They didn't work. Phones were backlogged. People couldn't get through. I went to the public library that day where there are computers available to folks to use. The place was jammed. So clearly the demand side was very, very high. Uh, uh, that's a good thing. Our preparations at that time had been for just that. What are we going to do if there's a sudden surge of interest? So we, IU Health and many other systems, but IU Health in particular was prepared. I must say, if you were to roll back the clock and do it over again, it was way too complicated. At the beginning, it's become simpler, but it's still pretty complicated to fit your family into the multitude, bronze, silver, platinum, plans that are available on the exchanges. And then with the introduction over the last couple of decades, but it's sort of gotten more uh, universal recently, the high deductibles have made it difficult for families to plan. Probably the most dramatic unintended consequence has been the spike in rates the last year. Anybody who's read a newspaper or gotten on the internet in the last six weeks has seen that at least this year for insurance products for next year, the insurance companies are forecasting and then asking for double-digit increases, in some cases 20 to 30 to 40 percent in premiums. So if you're a family that makes 400% of the federal poverty level, so a family of four, that's over $90,000, which sounds like a lot of money, you don't receive any uh, subsidy to help pay for those premiums. So I still think the middle class is being hit by health care costs in a way not anticipated. So with the high premiums, and then and then we have touched on the fact that some of the um, insurance companies are pulling out of certain marketplaces. Yes, they can't make any money, so they're leaving. So does that translate, all this put together, translate into better health care for a patient? Uh, well, there are two things here going on. So you ask me about individual patients. I think about individual patients and populations of patients. So really the question is twofold. Is it better for individual patients? And is it better for large groups of people? In other words, is the state of Indiana getting healthier because of the Affordable Care Act? And am I better off or are you better off because of the Affordable Care Act? As to individuals, it's very situational because you may have had plenty of adequate insurance before. I did, didn't you? So it, it affected poor people and uninsurable people most dramatically. So... Anybody who's got a family member, a young adult in their family, knows what happened to that person as soon as they went off the family plan. If they were a diabetic, they had a pre-existing condition, they couldn't be insured. So under the Affordable Care Act, they are insured. So that individual's health care did improve. Except for now that their premiums are going and Now their premiums high. are going up. So I get asked this question all the time, why is that? So two things you have to keep in mind. One, actuarial science. <laughs> so if there's more risk in the pool that you and I share, our costs are going to go up. So who pays for the traffic accident the guy down the street had? Everybody who's got the same insurance plan he does, right? Mm -hmm. 
So it's the same thing uh, in, in healthcare. So the real question is, by a more rational application of health services through a rational payment mechanism, which is what the Affordable Care Act sought to be, are we driving down the demand side? Are, are people healthier? For instance, the Indiana Medicaid expansion, HIP 2.0, provided previously uninsured people with preventative medicine, primary care visits. So theoretically, anyway, that should improve their health status, take them out of the ER where they go and get it, and get them into a primary care doc's office. We don't have enough data yet to know whether or not the disease burden, the sickness of people in one jurisdiction or another, is actually better or not. That will take years to get. So did the Affordable Care Act keep you up at night? Well, uh, you may recall, as I alluded to a second ago, you it, sleep well. no, I don't it was chaotic. Yeah, yeah. And the president was playing defense before and after the exchanges opened. Uh, it turned out to be true. It was chaotic after they opened. So really the being kept up at night before the Affordable Care Act was implemented was, how's this act? Remember Y2K? <laughs> What's actually going to happen when they open the gates? So that was the biggest fear. I think we've managed through that. Now the concern is population health. That is, with more and more pressure on the cost of care to your family, the price you actually pay, the only way to lower the aggregate to society is if the actuarial risk pool gets healthier. What do I mean when I say that? So we know out of 100,000 people how many are uh, diabetics. How many have uncontrolled blood pressure? How many have never measured their hemoglobin A1C? We know that. Those are the folks that might end up in an ER. In a managed population and the use of data, we'd be able to predict and intervene and manage that person's health to make them healthier and drive down the demand side. That has yet to really happen. That's one of the reasons the larger insurance companies are withdrawing from the exchanges. They've offered groups of people insurance, and they're finding out that they just aren't managing the disease burden of that particular group. They're no healthier than they were before. So population health is, where the, is what you think is the next kind of well, challenge or, is, or, or, or yeah. what, what's already here that we really need to pay attention to? Population health is sort of a buzzword, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so can no, we start maybe a definition? Yeah, then. so Let's nobody really knows what it is. But let me make up a silly example. Um, you come to me and you say, I've got 500 employees, and I'm your health care provider. And you say, Dan, I will give you a million dollars to cover these 500 employees, but that's all. You take all the risk. If it costs less, you keep it. If it costs more, you eat it. So suddenly I have to manage a population of 500 people. In that 500 will be pregnant moms, diabetic folks, folks with chronic disease, folks who've never seen a doctor before. And I need to know a lot of data about that population in order to manage it. So what do I need to do that? I need analytics. So information technology, turning data into information about the population and then about you is the next iteration of healthcare. So everybody thinks hitting 911 is the best thing to do if they're not feeling well. And that, generally speaking, is a good thing to do. But if you're part of a managed population, your disease state would be measured by the thing I have in my pocket, 
my uh, my smartphone in my pocket would send data to a central station that would notify a practitioner that they need to intercede. My mother-in-law is managed that way. She's part of a Medicare Advantage program where her providers monitor her through electronic devices in her home. So she doesn't have to live in a place where there are providers right there to manage her. That is slow. That idea is slowly creeping into the general population. The proponents of it are people like me, actuaries, academicians. The opponents of it are people who think, well, you're going to use my health care data against me. We don't really trust our employer, and we sure as heck don't trust our insurance company. How are you going to use that data? I just got a letter from you saying that I needed to have my hemoglobin A1C tested. What does that mean? I didn't hear from my doctor. I heard from some computer. So you're an American, right? So am I. Americans do not like large organizations to mess with their lives. So there's a natural pushback to uh, using data about you, even to do good for you because there's a lack of trust. Let's talk a little bit about the accuracy of that. I mean, we we have electronic medical records, and we're still using a variety of electronic medical records, and they don't necessarily talk to each other. How are we doing with collecting big data? IU Health uses a robust EMR electronic medical record, both older ones and more modern ones that have been uh, created by private vendors. So it's the merging of all these databases that must occur. So for instance, let's say that right after this interview, you hopped in your car to drive home and you had a traffic accident um, and you weren't injured seriously because I wouldn't wish that on anybody. <laughs> but, Thank but you for it, your example. But it, okay. requires, it requires somebody to hit 911. Mm -hmm. It'd just be dumb luck if you happened to go to a facility where your data were available. So if you were a diabetic with high blood pressure, blah, 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 they may or may not know that. So it's entirely different than an ATM machine where you can land in Europe in an airplane tomorrow and the machine has data available to it real time, whether or not it can give you 200 euro because you've got that amount of money in your account. So the interoperability, which is what you're talking about, and the meaningful use of the data is still on a journey. But I'm talking about that. Just, I'm talking about that. That is the data being available. But I'm also talking about the analytics. That is, what do the data mean? That's Dan Evans, the recently retired CEO of IU Health. We'll take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a bit more about the challenge of moving from those walls filled with manila folders of medical records to the electronic version. You're listening to the Sound Medicine Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Sound Medicine Podcast. I'm Barbara Lewis. 
I'm speaking today with Dan Evans. He just retired from leading one of the nation's biggest healthcare organizations, IU Health. So he wanted to get his thoughts on which parts of the Affordable Care Act seem to be working and where he might tweak it one way or another. We started with one big change that anyone who's been in a doctor's office in the past 10 years has seen, the sometimes clunky switchover from paper files to electronic medical records or EMRs. It seems to me that the electronic medical records and their related products have created a barrage of notices and alerts and keystrokes. So I hear lots of complaints from patients about their healthcare provider's back is to them because she or he is bent over a keyboard, busy entering data rather than talking to them. That's a fair observation. The frustrations on both sides of that relationship, by the way, I hear the same thing from providers that I hear from patients. So the um, usability of these devices is in an evolutionary stage, and I think we've got some years to go before it actually, this is a lawyer's term, is used and useful. Everybody uses it, and they find it useful. And that journey is going to require constant feedback from providers. And I believe that the IT industry, the innovators in information technology, have not listened to the physician customer and the patient customer. They've been intent on collecting and providing the data, and they've done that. The next step is, okay, now we've got the data. How do we make sure that it's used and useful? So there's a lot of frustration around EMRs. Anything else that during your tenure you you saw this transformation, um, whether it was ended up being a challenge or a benefit? Well, despite lots of conversation about how this would benefit patients, there seems to be little uh, application that you could say, well, my experience is 10 times better. So I'm mindful that you've got to remain focused on the patient and the patient's family. What we're learning is that an episode of care is just that, it's an episode of care. That because mom breaks her hip in the kitchen and has to be hauled downtown, which a lot of us have done with our moms, that's the acute care episode. The chain of events that led to that and the chain of events that follow it, that hopefully go from home to home, means that we should be mindful of the entire experience. So on the way out here, ironically, I got a text message from my sister who had her hip replaced in a hospital that shall remain unnamed, not in this state, (laughs) and she was annoyed at the lack of feedback to her, the patient. And all I could think of is I know all this, the big hospital, all the staff and all the docs have got mountains of data about her. Apparently, no one's actually talking to the patient about the data they have about her, like how the surgery go? How long will the rehab be? So this is, this is a, uh, um, a frustrating uh, journey uh, for people in the industry like me, even in my retired state, who would like to see most of the benefit go to the patient and not to the system writ large. So is this the, is this the fault of just it being incredibly complex on every level? Or is this just a, somebody dropped the ball and trying to figure out the point where we actually take everything that we're doing and, and putting it down to an individual level and concentrating too much on, on populations? I think it's unnecessarily complicated, is my own view. But part of it is we're not making widgets here. 
Every widget's the same. Every bit of raw material for that widget is the same. Every patient that goes to see her or his doctor is different, and what those patients don't want is to be objectified. Oh, you're the lady with breast cancer. You're the boy with testicular cancer. You're the man with a brain tumor. No, I'm Dan. I'm Mary. I'm Bob. And it is very hard to do that. Anybody who sat in a hospital or a physician's waiting room knows exactly what I'm talking about. Let's talk a little bit about um, academic health centers, because IU Health is certainly one of those. Uh, and you mentioned before we sat down that all over the country, academic health centers and systems are examining their business model of research, education, and clinical care. Okay, so what's prompting a re-examination? Well, uh, academic health centers, and the country has dozens of them, uh, discharge a tripartite mission, education. So, for instance, within walking distance of my office downtown, two-thirds of the physicians and nurses in the state of Indiana are trained. <laughs> so you might live in Fort Wayne, Evansville, Terre Haute, South Bend, Rushville, or Gary. The chances are excellent that the medical staff that is touching you and treating you was trained within walking distance of my office. So that's the academic health center. The academic health system is the statewide system that we run, and so the tripartite mission of education, research, and clinical care is discharged statewide by the system. So I'll give you an example. I was uh, sitting in the heart catheterization lab the other day with a friend of mine and his wife who was having a heart cath. That's a nervous moment for people. <laughs> you can imagine you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So my buddy is lying on a uh, gurney waiting to be wheeled in, and the research nurse comes in, and he responds to a five- or six-page document giving consent that his, uh, for lack of a better word, his body parts, tissues, and liquids can be used for research. That person has to be paid. Reimbursement doesn't pay for that person in the normal way. That blood, that body parts are taken away to a research lab. They become part of a, of a large study. So most hospitals don't do that. So research costs more money. So if you're doing research, clinical care, and education, the tripartite mission, clinical care is what floats the boat. The other two don't really provide the economic stimulus that the, that the first one does. The Affordable Care Act does not dramatically assist innovators or educators. It wasn't designed. It was designed to control costs and to increase coverage and hopefully to improve quality. So this is a, a bit of a tug of war, arm wrestling match between the academic health centers in the country, our government, and our citizens. So, so here's an example. My uh, grandmother in Frankfort, Indiana, had bad hips. When I was a little boy, she lived in the dining room. She did not go upstairs. My mother had her hips replaced multiple times, and, and my aunt, her sister, had her hips replaced. My aunt's still alive. My mother's deceased. My mother was mobile till the day she died. My aunt is mobile today. My grandmother cost society, I'm guessing, almost nothing. My mom and my aunt, because they're both Medicare, cost society some money to give them the new hips, but they also were the beneficiaries of innovation. They got hips that were invented and manufactured, by the way, in Warsaw, Indiana. <laughs> so you decide, public, you decide, is it worth paying for innovation? So the country is ambivalent about innovation. Well, we want it. 
Well, we say we want it, but it's not free. So I, I have multiple conversations with members of Congress on this issue. Uh, and Indiana, as you well know, is in the top two or three states in the country of health and life science innovation. So we export most of what we produce here. So we're a net beneficiary of innovation. And the IU School of Medicine and IU Health are right in the center of that. But it costs more and society's been ambivalent about it. So that was, to you, one of the things that you would like to change about the Affordable Care Act. If you could rewrite the Affordable Care Act, um, where would you start? Wow. Would you want to? I guess is maybe where I should start. Let's talk about the Medicaid expansions. Okay. So a bunch of states have expanded Medicaid, and they've gotten waivers, which means they've gotten to do it their own way. So right now, there are multiple experiments going on in the country where one state might do it differently than another. Indiana got a waiver, for instance, for its Medicaid expansion to be a little different. But there are experiments all over the place. I think we should compare those experiments, see which ones are working better than others, and see what we can learn from the data about its practical application. For IU Health and providers, it means, means we've been able to divert people out of emergency situations into more meaningful planned care in primary care centers and things more appropriate to whatever their disease state is. So I would not have come up with quite as complex a system as the Affordable Care Act did to expand coverage. I might have done it in more bite-sized pieces. I'd be way more flexible with the states on Medicaid expansion. CMS, which is part of HHS, is a very slow approval rate for these experiments at the, at the state. I think we're going to have to go back and recognize that it is costing more than we thought. And we provide a protection to lower-income people but we've provided no protection to middle-income and upper-middle-class people, and it's become unaffordable to them as well. So you, you hear about bad debt increasing. Uh, the bad debt is the high deductibles. People just can't afford to pay them. And the high premiums combined. We're going to have to look at that again, but it's not going to be free. Somehow we're going to have to pay that through a reallocation of scarce resources or more tax revenue. I'm all for need and income-adjusted premiums, but they've gone up so fast they've become unaffordable. So there's going to have to be more actuarial science applied to the actual pricing of this. Lastly, the Affordable Care Act should have been written in a way in which the supply of nurses and physicians was increased. It didn't even it didn't, it didn't do anything. So we sign up 380,000 new people in Indiana. There's not one new doctor. <laughs> uh, there's not one new physician's assistant. There's not one new nurse anesthetist included in all that. So that I think that was a major oversight uh, in the act, and it was probably done to keep the costs lower of the act. So innovation and manpower and complexity, I would have, you know, it's great in hindsight, isn't it? But those would be the things I'd focus on. And we have a presidential election coming up. I mean, are you hearing anything? Um, I'm hearing a lot, but I mean, are you are you, are you hearing anything about health care this time around? Well, it seems to have kind of dropped off the radar. I mean, one candidate appears to have no position on it, and the other candidate was one of the inventors of it 20 years ago, and she appears to have no current position that she's willing to put into the forefront. 
So I guess we'll have to wait and see <laughs> what various position papers the national candidates come up with. And I'm sure they will, especially since the election is going to be in the heat of people signing up for next year's coverage for their families. And so folks are going to see what the premiums have done. So what would you do if your premiums went up 20 to 40 percent and you had a need for the services? So you weren't going to be able to ignore it. Right now, you pay a small fine if you don't sign up. The fine really isn't enough to force you to sign up. But what we're finding is people are pretty sophisticated. In fact, they're very sophisticated. If they have a certain disease state in their family like diabetes or a behavioral health issue with a, a child or even an adult, they know what kind of coverage they need to buy. And if you have some kind of pre-existing condition and you want to get coverage that has a lower deductible because you know you're going to be using it more, you will pay a higher premium. And folks are figuring that out. Everybody's becoming a... Uh, uh, has had their toe dipped in the in the ocean of actuarial science. And so that's the most interesting thing to come out of this is now everybody recognizes that actually the state of your health is what's driving the cost and the state of your next-door neighbor's health. So, uh, and here's one of those typical um, political season questions. So are you we're better off uh, now than we were 14 years ago? Uh, on the innovation side, we are much better off. The number of cures that have been created in the last 10 or 20 years is spectacular. So you've got to say yes in that regard. You've got to say yes in terms of the number of folks covered by health insurance and therefore accessing care. So 20 million plus or minus are accessing care. You've got to say no in the sense that has the population gotten healthier? The most charitable answer is we're not quite sure yet. The more accurate answer is not in any demonstrable way. So we have a more profound issue here. We can't innovate our way out of poor health status without a partnership with people and with docs and rehab places and hospitals and schools and everything you can think of. And we're not there yet, especially here in the Midwest where you and I are sitting right now, where the disease burden, obesity, diabetes, cancer, smoking, really is not a whole lot better than it was many, many, many years ago. So that you'd have to say that the cultural side of it it has been a slow-moving boat, and we're still trying to turn it just a little bit. Well, Dan Evans, it's so good to talk with you. Thanks for having me. That was Dan Evans, the retired CEO of IU Health. He's staying busy now teaching after 14 years in the corner office watching this transformation called the Affordable Care Act. And that's it for this episode of the Sound Medicine Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please like us on Facebook. Tell your friends. They can find us at all the usual podcast places. And if you leave a review on iTunes, it helps other folks find us. The producer of Sound Medicine Podcast is Nora Hyatt with help from Eric Metcalf. Chris Lieber is our engineer, and we have support from the IU School of Medicine. We'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. In the meantime, take care. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.